Okay. Open that. There we go. First off, any missing blanks? Just get that right out of the way. Lee, we good? We're good, Lee? Okay. She doesn't think so. That's good enough for me. Okay. Anyone else missing blanks or anything? We're good. Oh, there we go. Something fell on the floor. Okay, questions from this morning. Ron. You touched on um, David as king and um, his somewhat unwillingness or lack of desire to make decisions or delve into that, yet he's still described as a great king. So yes. it just seems kind of um, peculiar. Well, let me say this. I think given the statements about David being a man after God's own heart and how good he was, that if you only have four failures in 20, 40 years of ruling as a king, you did a pretty good job. It is interesting that when the text highlights his deficiencies, there is a consistent pattern of him failing to follow through justly with those things. So I, didn't, I wouldn't want to characterize David as someone who's always doing this. But we are told of the, his son with Absalom, with uh, Mephibosheth and Ziba. Uh, we're, we're told of those things, and we, we see the consequence from such little things. I mean, you can imagine that if he had dealt with the issue of the rape of his daughter, that Absalom wouldn't have assassinated them, and, and you could have avoided all of that. Um, and if he dealt with Absalom when he returned, when, when Joab came and, and pleaded for him and he brought him in and some verdict was given, whether it was what you did was just, it was horrible, but it was just, or no, you deserve to die, but he just sort of pouts, okay, you can come back, but I don't want to talk to him. I mean, you're, you're provoking him. There's a sense in which David makes things worse, and I don't want to say Absalom's rebellion is on Absalom, but David absolutely provokes him to it. Um, and Adonijah. Yes, Carol. But no, but we, the absolute record is, by and large, the totality of David's ministry, we, we would assume, is righteous and faithful. These are the outliers, the blips. So I don't want it to sound like, yeah, David just never followed through. But this text does give us these examples of failure that are instructive for us. Yes, Carol. Well, as you were mentioning his, his failure to deal with things in those situations, huh. um, I said to Kathy, I think those, those, and the vast majority of those failures cropped up after his failure with Bathsheba. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's, everything just went downhill. And um, I'm thinking, I, I wonder if he, after his great sin, after you've committed a sin, it's difficult for you to deal with other people's sins. You think, I'm a, yeah. too rotten to deal with that. Right. Because uh, it seems like he was so good, and then that happened, and then everything just went haywire. Um, I, I've, you got any comment on the connection there? No, that I, I still wouldn't even want to say it went haywire, just to the effect that the total summary, especially with the later kings, he, did, he didn't do like his father David. He did what was evil. The, the, the Bible's summary of David's reign is righteous and good. That's, that's the grade he gets. For not righteous isn't like sinless, but what's the text summary and judgment of David's reign? King after God's own heart. He he did what pleased the Lord. I'm just thinking, uh, maybe for us we can think uh, 
giving into a sin like that yeah. once, we need to think that's going to have long-term effects. Yeah. You know, and the, you know the verse we were talking about several weeks ago in, in Hebrews? Mm. For you know the how afterwards, when he sought to inherit the blessing, you mm. know, talking about yeah, oh, yeah, Esau yeah. Selling, his birthright. selling his birthright, yeah. afterwards he sought to, you know, that one rash giving into the flesh, no chance to repent. Yeah. And um, so, anyway. Are you raising your hand about Adonijah? Uh, about that. Oh, yeah, that. Sort of, yeah. yeah. Um, my question was, with the exception of Ziba and Mephibosheth, everybody you related had to do with his children, and I was wondering if perhaps the author was not highlighting the bad effects of polygamy. That's, well, you're, yeah, you're hitting on another, yeah. People sometimes wrestle with why doesn't the Old Testament forbid polygamy? Um, it's, it's prohibited from kings. I would argue it does. Um, and that Jesus goes back to Genesis 2 for his reasons on divorce and remarriage, and that if you don't see polygamy prohibit, prohibited in Genesis 2, you will not see it prohibited anywhere. Um, not in any sort of blanket statement. If definitionally a marriage is, is one man and one woman joining and the two becoming one, if you don't see, you can't then take a third person and add them to the mix, or that the three become two and a half. Like, I, don't, I don't know how the math works. If you don't see in, intrinsically right there the prohibition. Now, what you do get in the rest of the Pentateuch in the Old Testament, and, and you're, you've heard me talk on this, I do think the, the narrator will regularly go out of his way to highlight the bad fruit polygamy bears. I mean, you think of some of the instances like, um, like Leah and Rachel bartering mandrakes over sexual rights with their husband. I mean, that is so broken. And you wonder, what on earth place does this have in the Word of God? I'm sure there are many broken things that happen. I'm sure there are many disgusting, and they got in a big fight, and he called her a fat cow. Or you know, Rachel means fat cow, so anytime he called her by her name, he was calling her fat cow. Um, but uh, it's a compliment to have a fat cow. And those, anyway, sorry, that's meant to be a joke. Okay. Um, but but uh, what we get this picture, why? Well, I think it's to show you the, uh, the bad fruit that polygamy bears. Why do you get told the story of um, Tamar and Amnon? Again, I think it's the same, the same principle. Or, um, with, with all through, any place I can see polygamy, I see the narrators going out of their way showing the bad fruit. But I'll take it a step further. You mentioned this with Adonijah. Go to 1 Kings 1. David was a bad parent. Um, or at least for Adonijah he was. David did a... And that's also, when you've got multiple kids from multiple wives, you're going to have a hard time like parenting them. Um, and David failed royally, pardon the pun, with Adonijah. Now, if you remember, Adonijah is the older brother of Solomon. And so when David is on his deathbed, um, and uh, they're warming his bed with Abishag, and, and they're getting ready for the transfer of the kingdom... Adonijah thinks oh, the kingdom's going to go to me naturally. In fact, Joab and the other high priest, um, what's his name? Which high priest? There's two high priests at the time. There's Zadok and there's the other high priest. Oh, we'll find that, I'm sure. Benaniah. Um, Benaniah and Joab go with, with Adonijah. 
assuming he's going to be king. And then word comes to Bathsheba, hey, Adonijah's making his mount. But the, but the Lord had promised the kingdom to Solomon, and David had said that. So, so um, Bathsheba gets Zadok the priest, and they come in. Anyone who knows that coronation anthem that the choir sang a couple years ago, the, was it the Des Moines choir, show choir? So it's Handel, right? Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anointed. Okay, it's about the anointing of Solomon as king. But you get this great little, and again, when the narrator says stuff, it's important. So to explain, look at 1 Kings 1.5. Now Adonijah, the son of Hagith, exalted himself saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Why on earth, what would get into this kid's head? What could explain this, um, this uppity usurpation of authority? His father had never, at any time, displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? Now, the narrator feels the need to give some explanation. And so at least with Adonijah, failed. He, David never called Adonijah's actions into account. He never said, hey, explain yourself. What are you doing? Okay, that's how you get a kid who mounts a coup. You know? Um, so, so, no, if, despite being a man after God's own heart, David clearly, I mean, that, that's a clear indictment of his up and down parenting of Adonijah. He, David never called Adonijah into account for what he was doing. Adonijah got to do what he pleased, and he never was challenged by his father. Hey, what are you doing? Okay, well, that's how you raise a, uh, a usurper and a uh, rebel. Yeah? Okay. Is that going where you're going? Or? Okay. Other questions or thoughts or complaints? Oh, Greg. Well, someone asked the question, how could David, maybe it was Marion, how could David be considered... Uh, such a righteous uh, person when we know of all these things that he's done. I mean, the only thing that rationale tells you that the rest of us are worse. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And that if our lives were laid out in print, uh, it would look much worse. And perhaps in our own minds, we're thinking, well, at least I didn't do that. Well, but you have your own things that uh, if they were highlighted, you know, God may or may not be saying, Greg Sweetie is a man after, you know, God's own heart. Right. Well, and and it also is instructive that the scripture seems to think we're going to get probably more instruction from seeing David's failures than his successes. I mean, the the scriptures give us plenty of successes, but like I said, I would fill in the blanks by assuming just because we're not told, and the next day David gave right judgments and ruled well, and the day after that David gave right judgments. I'd fill in the blanks given the summary statements on his reign that we're seeing the blips, we're seeing the outliers, but we absolutely are being slowed. Slow down. Let me show you this blip. Let me show. You. And so we're getting the instruction that there's there's an encouragement and a discouragement. The encouragement: righteous, faithful people can screw up royally. Be encouraged. And your point. And if David's a man after God's own heart, we're probably way worse in our judgments of this as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anything else? Questions, thoughts, complaints? We haven't even got to politics yet. Greg Rolak came up to me. He's like, you're going to be talking about politics. And we'll see. 
And, oh, Bob, Bob, Bob will take the bait. Here we go. When you started out, you made reference to the fact that none of us are probably going to be involved in the theocratic kingdom uh, as we leave today. And of course, the kingdom, so to speak, of the government of the United States um, is not theocratic. And David had the benefit of being both, the, he was the king, the exec, chief executive, he was the Supreme Court, yeah. and he was the legislature. So yeah. he had all control of government. Uh, and the presentation today kind of pointed toward uh, values voting, um, that it'd be very difficult to do something different. And yet the scriptures say that we submit to those in authority. Yep. One of the complications I had, of course, practicing law, was um, we didn't necessarily apply biblical law. And I had many people come to me because I was a Christian lawyer. And, and I, I had occasion to say, well, you realize as a Christian lawyer, I might have a different view on how this ought to come out. Right. And taking a different approach. In fact, I did emphasize uh, taking matter before the elders in some churches and mm. some conflicts. But uh, it would be an, a near impossible situation to be a legislator and to apply the passage the way David was able to apply apply it in terms of values because we have presentation of different issues before us. Same thing with being a, a judge. Right. Uh, you know, you get stuck with the issues that are before you and you have to deal with it. Um, I had some opportunity to be considered for a judgeship and right. said I didn't want to because I didn't want to have to face Roe versus Wade right. uh, and have to make the decision that would be supportive of the authority, those in authority. Um, right. And it, so it seems to me you've made a case for values voting, but puts us all in an impossible position of who are we going to vote for when we don't get the choices that we want to have. I'd hate to be presented with the option of uh, can we vote for uh, someone that is, I mean, can we vote for someone that's going to have an impact on Roe versus Wade, but not 100%. You know, uh, no, it's, it's let me let me let me put out some of the challenging difficulties. There are a ton. First of which, it's clear God's favorite form of government is a theocracy. It's what He sets up in Israel. It's what He promises He'll set up when He returns. Right? He's a king. We're hardwired that that's not a good form of government. We we had a revolution to throw off a king. Okay. Um, so we have a you know, representative democracy, a republic, or what? We're yeah. So we do that. Great. Next question. What laws should we have? So I'll ask, I'll ask you a question. Let's just say next week a law comes up and they bring it to public vote. Should adulterers be put to death? You're going to be hard-pressed condemning the law of Moses. I think you are. I hope you are. But I'm not sure I'd be in favor of that law. That'd be a challenging... To, you know what I mean? Because we recognize the problem when the state, when a non-God-instituted theocracy... When a man-made theocracy tries to register that. The whole reason was after the Protestant Reformation, when England went back and forth and these other European countries went back and forth, and there was no longer any um, consistency, they saw the problem of that. You know, it'd just probably be better if the government stayed out of politics, religion in the first place. Understand, that's not an idea you get from the Bible. That's just an idea we pragmatically got from watching Bloody Mary, then back, to, back and forth, you know, in, in England. And I get the rationale. I'm not saying I disagree with it. I'm just saying, um, if you're going to go to the Bible, like, how should we rule a country? You, you'd get a theocratic, righteous king. 
Um, it's like when people talk to me about how they're disappointed the Ten Commandments are out of courtrooms. I'm like, I don't think you want the Ten Commandments, at least not the first couple, because there's no religious liberty in the Ten Commandments. You can understand that, right? There's no religious... The Ten Commandments forbid religious liberty. You shall not worship any other god. Right? I mean, so when people say that, I'm like, do you really mean what you're saying? Because I don't think you do. I think you mean something like, uh, we want our, usually those, those are there as a picturing of the significant and foundational role the scriptures and the law of Moses had in coming up with our understanding of justice. No denying that. Great. Um, but even there, we're not applying it consistently because we allow religious liberty, which is forbidden by the Ten Commandments. Um, and I'm not saying we shouldn't. These are some of the sticky, I'm just trying to bring up some of the sticky matters. Then you bring up the question of voting. And do you vote in the short view or the long view? Do you vote pragmatically? Um, because pragmatically, you're probably going to only have two people you, there's any real possibility of electing coming up in the next you know, election. Um, so do you just vote for the lesser two evils? I'm, I'm, and I'm not trying to answer these questions. I'm just trying to lay them out. Or do you say, I'll vote for somebody today who has no chance of winning because in, in the hopes that in the long run, as more and more people, two, three, four, five, six percent vote for these independents, they will eventually influence the policies of the mainline people as the, as the different parties want to get that three, four, five percent into their party. Well, you know, so, so two different people could say, okay, I got these two options. I think this one's worse than this. I'm voting for this. I'm not going to say that person's wrong. But I also got the other person who says, I'm voting for this person who has no chance of winning because I'm hoping in 20, 30, 40 years, if enough people do that, it'll actually have an effect. Okay, I, I'm not going to say that person's wrong either. Lee's going to decide for us, though. So who is it, Lee? Okay. Okay, Lee. Yeah, yeah. Hold on. Well, and then there's the question of, of saying, what is my vote? And you can also vote. You're voting with a utilitarian outlook that I'm doing it as an investment in the future if you vote for a third party or whatever. I mean, I've done it in the past, and yeah, yeah. then you get the really bad person. But... The other question is, is your vote your like a sacred honor issue that you have to vote your heart with your heart and mind with blah blah. So okay. That's well all. I think that anywhere we have the chance to influence the society for good, we ought to. And so when the when the Caesar says, What do you want me to do? Who do you want to rule? We we ought to take that opportunity to influence for the good of a people. Um that, that seems pretty clear. But how you go about doing that with what strategy um, is, uh, is, is complicated. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I've got to have keep in mind is that you know, this republic was set up and based on a lot of Calvinistic political theory. Uh-huh. And uh, it seems to me it's the best approach in light of the fact that we don't have a theocracy. It takes into account the wickedness of men as well as... Uh, uh, you know, the separation of church and state um, issues, which, of course, goes back to what does that actually mean? Uh, you know, when, when they said the Congress shall not pass any law impairing the um, infringing on the religion, it was whether or not you had to be a Baptist or a Presbyterian right, right. or a Catholic, uh, as opposed to whether or not you were supposed to be a Muslim or a Christian right, right. and whatever, or an atheist and whatever. So. We've really gone far afield from what it should be, but right. perhaps that's from the fact that there's been uh, not enough involvement by Christians because it, it's awfully hard to be to be uh, pristine in your approach in politics. You have to deal with the questions they're presented with. 
Yeah, well, the, the, yeah, the problem is postmodernism has done a good job of pointing out that virtually all value judgments are religious. And so things that could be assumed upon uh, before as a common ethic, more and more often people are saying, says who? So, you know, you shouldn't have four wives at the same time. Says who? You shouldn't intermarry men against men with men, women with women. Says who? And so things that more ethically could be assumed generations ago are becoming religious issues. And I would agree, all value judgments are religious. Every one. Every value judgment's religious. I'm just frustrated that the atheists don't recognize, the naturalists don't recognize the religious nature of their judgments. You know, um, I'm, I'm frustrated that, you know, um, being bigoted is bad is an equally religious statement because I want to be like, says who? You know, um, you know, discrimination is bad. I agree, says who? I mean, every value judgment, if you press it down to its foundation, is going to be a religious statement. There's no other appeal. You, science cannot give you oughts. Science can give you is, things that are. This is what happens. Science will never bridge the gap from is to ought, to ethics. Ethics is fundamentally religious. Um, and so it, it's now, more and more often, people are asking, says who, says who, to everything. And... Our answer is, of course, religious. And they say, see, so therefore it's ruled out of bounds because it's a religious argument. You know, um, it, it's, it's the de- erosion. It's the erosion of a common culture. It's an ero- I mean, it just is. It was that more and more Americans shared a common Judeo-Christian worldview. And so you didn't have to bolster every value statement with a text. There was assumed understandings about things like the importance and fidelity in marriage and things like that, um, that you could assume across the culture, even with unbelievers, because if they're unbelievers, to quote um, D.A. Carson, the God they were not believing in was the Judeo-Christian God. They're Judeo-Christian unbelievers, if if you get what I'm saying. Um, We've now gone into a a framework that many call post-Christian. So what do you do and, and this really is an ethical dilemma. What do you do? How do you rule, make righteous laws where you have no cultural agreement of values? And that's a real difficulty because I get the flip side, which is they don't want my ethics being imposed on them, and I don't want my ethics being imposed on me. So what do you do when you've got two radically different ethical systems? I mean, because in the past, because it seems like right now the answer is, well, we just need to get our group together so that our side's stronger than their side. We vote our way, and then we'll force our will on them. Well, if we don't like them forcing their will on us, I don't know if the best solution is us forcing our will on them. I'm not even sure what the dilemma is. I mean, the most... Oh, go, go, go. You're describing... Uh, one of the conflicts of t- what is tolerance and and how do you deal with tolerance, uh, and yet at the same time, all of the wisdom literature, literature makes it clear that it's screaming out from the streets what the believer ought to be able to do in skill in living their life. Yeah. And and so to me, there's answers to all these questions. How should we vote? It's in the scriptures. It tells us how we should vote, and and somehow I think it's the church is not as uh, intimately involved in dealing with those questions. They'd rather to deal with the Johnson Amendment and not say anything about politics so that the people in the congregation don't have a choice and don't know what the leadership wants to do. You know, I'm, I'm involved in rentals, and I have to rent to whoever comes to me. I can't, I can't uh, choose not to rent to a, a single person that I know is going to be living with somebody or a, 
a gay person that's going to be doing right. that. And now the church is dealing with this problem. Is it well now? What if two gay people come to the pastor and want to be want to be uh, uh, married? Yeah. And I'm saying, welcome to my world. This is the world yeah. that you that the church has chosen to ignore and forced upon the rest of the of the world and the Christian world. Um, and I'm glad to see some of it having to be dealt with. But I think the wisdom literature is very clear. There's answers to all of these questions, and the church needs to get involved in them. Well, I'm not suggesting for a moment that the difficult issues I've brought up don't have answers. I'm just highlighting a simplistic answer is not going to work. These are complicated issues. Um, and you're right. We haven't been wrestling with them because, by and large, up until 20, 30 years ago, we were the majority. And so we just <laughs> had it our way for the most part. Um, and we didn't fuss at all when no-fault divorce laws got passed. We're fussing an awful lot now about gay marriage, because marriage is sacred. Well, where were we back when Reagan, Reagan in California, passed that? Um, was that not an attack on marriage? I mean, part of my point is, you're right, the church has been very picky and choosy about where they cry foul, and what sins bother them, and what infringements bother them, and we're reaping that to some degree. Fair enough. I'm I'm just agreeing and trying to highlight it is complicated, it's complex, and I do think there are answers. I do think Scripture gives answers. I'm just warning against a simplistic answer. That's all. And I don't, it's not within the scope or the time of this ABF to try to answer all those questions in 15 minutes. So, um, but I agree. I'm not trying to throw, who knows? So everyone do what's right in the sight of their own eyes. It's more, start thinking through some of these things because they're, they're tough. Um, it's like the death penalty, right? So in principle, I'm in favor of the death penalty. But the follow-up question is, okay, for what crimes? Certainly, Genesis 9 gives to man the power of taking man's life for murder, right? Um, and then you could, so then where do you go from there? Okay, we put murderers to death. What about people who commit treason? What about kidnappers? What about adulterers? What about fornicators? What? False verdicts. False verdicts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so all of a sudden, it's one thing to say I'm in favor of the death penalty, but without saying, okay, for what crimes and with what standard of evidence? You haven't really answered anything yet. Um, it, it's complicated. Um, so I want to, as much as I'm in principle in favor, there are times when the government should kill, absolutely. What's much less clear is what those times are, given what standard of evidence. That's, that's the follow-up question. So we're like, you in favor of the death penalty? Yes, but... We need to discuss when, where, and how. That's where I'm less certain on. Um, because things the Bible makes, you'd be surprised the things that are capital crimes in the Bible. Rebellious children. Consistently rebellious children. Capital crime. Um, and uh, fornication. Capital crime. Adultery. Capital crime. Homosexuality. Capital crime. Okay. So, so right off the bat, you're probably thinking, okay, we shouldn't just make everything the Bible makes capital crimes, capital crimes. Okay, then how are you going to pick and choose what your capital crimes are? It's tough. And I'm, again, I'm not saying there aren't answers. I'm just saying it's tough. But we got 10 minutes. Um, any other questions, or should we just riff on, on tough political questions? Um, any other questions from Psalm 101 this morning? None. Seb, you've been very quiet this morning. That's, I'm impressed. No, don't give him a microphone. <laughs> don't give him a microphone. He is his mother's son. I'd say that in all lovely, all love. Any other questions? Any other questions? To 
Al Ostrander. Okay, excellent. I think in the, uh, always in the discussion of David, as you get through it, you know, the if you go to the other side with David is, it's an encouragement to us that even with all of his troubles, God still viewed him and his body of work was, was great. And it gives us some encouragement that we can stumble and fail in many, many areas, but God's grace to us is still there. And, uh, we don't have to hang our head. We can rely on the blood of Christ. We can work hard to, uphold the ideals that he's laid out and to to be the kind of Christians we need to be, huh. knowing full well that we're still going to fail, but um, still keep that in mind and not live a, a uh, I guess, defeated life. No, amen, amen. Um, and even David in the psalm, oh, when will you come to me? He's going to need help to do this. He's not in his own strength going to do this. He needs, yeah, let me try to bring this back around. So I got 10 minutes. If I could sort of summarize, all of us, to varying degrees or to various of authority, spheres of rule, all of us are. Um, and I'll just speak to, to parents, because our body's got a lot of kids, but not just to parents, but you can apply this anywhere else. Just see the importance, first and foremost, of the integrity of your own walk, the importance of seeking wise and like-minded counselors, and the importance of being diligent to both punish evil and reward good and being involved in those things. And, the, and of course, the temptations for parents are to slough that off. I know I can be tempted. My kid comes up to me and tells me what my other kids did. And I got something I got to do. And you guys just go figure it out. You know? And you know, and then you got to remember David with Zeba and Mephibosheth. You know, like, okay, awesome. Um, and, and not modeling those things, not teaching those things. Uh, for some parents, the challenge will be disciplining evil. David's pretty clear how he's going to respond to evil in his kingdom. You know, and if, if we mollify it, coddle it, and and excuse it, that's wrong. And rewarding good, um, all of that. We we get in, a, in this psalm, we get a uh, character, we get a model of what godly rule is like, and. Um, we, we need to try to, it's given to the people of Israel both so that they can evaluate their leaders and as they rule and as they, I mean, that's the language of, uh, of 1 Timothy, um, of, of a prospective elder. How can he rule over the household of God if he doesn't rule his own home well? I mean, it's the same type of language of authority, jurisdiction. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're all, authority across the board is alike. Uh, rule across the borders are like there's different spheres, there's different degrees, but the, the understanding is, is 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 a king ruling a kingdom is following the same precepts and principles as as a mother and father ruling children. It, it's the the sphere the, the degrees are going to be different, but the basic principles are going to be the same. Just as much as as a governor, or just as much as leadership in the church, or just as much as leadership in a business. It, it's it's it's. The, the specific application and the degree, right? I mean, as parents, we're not killing people, but we are rewarding good and disciplining evil um, is is the same. It's just the specific degree is going to change. Um, so anyway, that's, that's the biggest takeaway for me and the importance to make sure, first and foremost, 
we're doing it ourselves, and we're not calling on people to do things we're not inherently doing. Um, that, that, of course, is the problem of the Pharisees. They sit in Moses' seat. They tell people what to do. They themselves don't do it. They're whitewashed tombs. I mean, the strongest language and the strongest condemnations that Jesus has are for, are for would-be leaders and teachers who are hypocrites. Uh, James tells us, my brethren, not many of you should be teachers for knowing that you who teach will suffer a, a stronger, more strenuous, greater judgment. Um, and so it's, it's a serious thing to exercise rule and uh, ought not to be done lightly. Last thoughts. I can let you go early. Last thoughts. Oh! Okay. No, no, microphone. Mi- no, no, mi- microphone, 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 microphone. Yes. Really, Carol's point was so good, and I've thought about that a long time. Our s- small group has studied how David didn't handle it, and so thank you that your sermon tied into that so well. And also I think of Samuel and his oh, sons totally. who... His sons are worthless. Yeah, and he did nothing. Yeah. The people tell him, we're not going to have your sons rule over us. The whole reason they get called for a king is Samuel's sons are worthless. Hophni and Phinehas are are Mm dirtbags. Totally. No, no, sorry. Hophni and Phinehas are Eli's sons, yes. And Samuel's sons are worthless. We don't know their names. Thank you. You're quite right. Correct. Thank you for my brain swimming. No. So both of those guys, Eli, the rebuke to Eli is really striking because you honored your sons above me. So the Lord saw in Eli's failure to dis... And he does do something. I'm going to use Eli instead of Samuel. Because Eli tells his sons who are, who are sleeping with the women at the temple and taking unlawful portions of the meat, they dip their big fork in and take instead of giving it first mm-hmm. to the Lord. And Eli tells them, you guys shouldn't do this. It's wrong. You shouldn't do it. But as the head priest, Levi should have kicked them out of office. He should have done more. It's not that Eli does nothing. He doesn't do enough. And then God says to him, you have honored your sons above me. Therefore, your house is done. And Hophni and Phinehas get killed when the Philistines take the ark. And then Eli hears that, falls off his seat, breaks his neck, and he dies. And Samuel's sons, we don't know who they are, but they're bad enough and their reputation's bad enough that as Samuel comes to the end of his life, if you read through Samuel, Samuel has this circuit. He'd ride on a donkey and he'd judge. And the people are like, hey, Samuel, (laughs) your kids are not taking your place, man. That's why they want a king. So it's remarkable that as good as Samuel was, he was a bad father. Um, And you see the failure of Eli as both a father and as a manager of the temple, you're the, you're the high priest. When you got priests who won't listen to your rebuke who are still doing this, unpriest them. You know, kick them out. But nope, he doesn't. So, okay. Is that where you're going? Yeah, with that? yeah. and also what Carol said, how like the evil one uses it against us mm. to correct our children, to correct even yeah. other Christians, like, who are you to talk? But we do have a responsibility. And so just... Um, taking our God-given responsibility humbly and with yeah. love, but keeping it all in perspective is important. Well, and I, th- I think the key, let me close out with that, with dealing with the hypocrisy. I mean, um, how do I confront somebody or challenge someone over drunkenness when I, as an unbeliever, drank the drunkenness? How do I challenge somebody who's doing those types of things if I've done them myself? If I'm seeing, I am trying to administer God's rule, 
And I'm starting with him, and I'm singing and delighted in his steadfast love and his justice. And then it's coming out of his word, and it's not, well, this is what seems good to me. Then my administration, and if currently, I'm not a hypocrite, and if currently there's no log in my eye, and I've dealt with my sin, then I can come forward and say, it's not about me. It's about the living God who is just and righteous all the time, everywhere. It's about his word, and then here's what needs to happen. Um, and, and that's the only way I think you could get over those feelings of like, how can I say anything? Cause I did that. If you've dealt with it, if it's not, it's different if right now that logs in your eye, right. but if you're like, no, totally last week had a log in my eye and I had to deal with that, but it's gone now. Then yeah, as, as you connect those lines, but then it's not about me. That's the other danger of parenting is, you know, my children, ideally, this is the tough thing, need to understand I'm a steward. It's not about King Jeremy. That's the danger of some parenting, because certainly early on, you're bigger than them. You're scarier than them. You can impose your will on them simply in the flesh, right? I can just look at them. And then they grow up, right? And one day they're not nearly as scared or impressed. And sometimes kids are like, hey, I'll take a shot for the title. Let's go. And you got to no. and I've heard stories like that, you know, fathers and sons get into conflict that way. My kids need to know it's not me, that I could be feeble and weak. There's a living God who made me their father, and that I'm exercising that stewardship. So when I correct sin, do they get the impression, dad was mad that his will was thwarted? This is about dad being inconvenienced and dad being displeased? Or is this about dad administering a law that's higher than him? And dad, as a steward, is acting on behalf of the living God for me. What, what are they getting from it, right? I mean, that, that's, of course, the other thing. And that's going to help, again, with the feelings of hypocrisy. If, if I'm, I'm doing this as a steward, I mean, so one of the things I'll tell my kids, mommy and daddy need to be, care about this, too. Mommy and daddy need to deal with fear, too. Mommy and daddy need to be faithful, too. You know, uh, you may not know this, but I can sometimes struggle with the detail work. I'm sure you're shocked. <laughs> and so when I'll talk to my kids being diligent with their work, I need to be able to say, hey, Zadok, you need to finish cleaning your room all the way. Daddy can struggle sometimes with finishing things all the way and being detail-oriented too. Making it clear we're both under an authority, we're both under a law, and it's not just a matter of, man, Dad didn't like how I cleaned my room. You know? um, those are other ways you can get around from the sense of guilt. Yeah, if, if you're ruling in your own authority because of who you are, then deficiencies in your character and past failures in your life are going to make you feel completely ill-equipped. That's not how we exercise authority and rule at all. Okay, we're at time. Thank you very much. God bless. Have a good day.